Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Maris. Hi, I'm Sandra. And my name is Phoebe. And you are listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism. It's sadly above midpoint of the scale, the level of support to the notion that it's not only okay, but also your civic duty to make others shut up. The person you just heard is Yarif Zwati, who's a professor at the University of Haifa in Israel. You will hear more from him in a second. He visited Vienna a few months ago to give a research talk at our department. And of course, we took the chance to speak with him about decreasing trust in the media and why some people might think it's their civic duty to make others shut up. We had a really engaging discussion with him about how Israeli and US politicians employ quite similar strategies to deal with the media and why distrust in small doses might actually be beneficial for democracy. So my name is Yeriv Tzfati. I'm the chair of the Department of Communication at the University of Haifa in Israel. Um, I've been studying trust in media for almost 20 years now. And the reason I got to studying it was uh, perhaps completely instrumental. I was looking for a dissertation topic. There was uh, uh, available data which I could link theoretically to research traditions and in communication. And uh, uh, my dissertation dealt with things that actually occupy uh, me uh, Uh, until this very day about the role of media trust in media effects and in media uh, exposure. But I must say in these two decades, the political relevance of uh, media trust has become uh, more apparent. It's uh, uh, with Donald Trump in the US and Netanyahu in Israel um, slamming the media all the time and the media are becoming a political actor almost in some contexts. Uh, the relevance of what the audience think about the media has become uh, even more important. But what is trust in the media and why is it beneficial? And do we have reliable measures of citizens' trust in the media? And why is trust so important in the relationship between audiences and journalists? In democratic theory, the, uh, the notion is... Uh, that people vote and make other political decisions not a, as in a reality show or as a beauty show contest. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be political decision-making based on information and exchange of ideas. And one of the most important vehicles, even today in the age of direct contact via social media, Is, uh, is the news media. Because on, on when, when our politicians communicate with us on Facebook or Twitter, there is no one to challenge them there. There is no one to, uh, uh, to expose corruption or to correct the fact or to, to check. And it's not that trust in journalism per se is, uh, is, is important. 
it's trusting good journalism that is uh, that is uh, important and that's the reason why I was uh, trying to differentiate in the talk between healthy skepticism which should be there because the media sometimes get stories completely wrong look at the US media in the context of the uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq story almost all of them uh, got the story wrong and had they gotten the story right it may have been the case that the US would not have gone to war in Iraq so it's not a uh, naive trust that we seek it's uh, it's more sophisticated and healthy skepticism but on the other hand we don't want people to be too critical even cynical towards the media the cynic rejects everything and some politicians uh, when they invoke the notion of fake news they tell their followers basically take only what's convenient to you take from the media only the information that 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 work nicely with your opinion that helps me get elected basically and that is dangerous for democracy as well and there is even another layer of danger there it's not only the uh, the cynical attitudes that such discourse cultivates and we know from empirical research that uh, that people take these signals and uh, the uh, negative rhetoric against the media is very effective in in uh, creating and negative attitudes towards media it's not only it's not only that that is uh, at the stake it's also the ability of journalists to do their work in a, in a, in such a hostile climate this cynical and selective trust in certain types of the media is not only critical for democracy but it can also have negative implications for the journalistic profession and public opinion. And what is more is that Yariv also explains how this affects the way journalists cover politics, which in turn steers public opinion. This has two layers. In many places around the globe, journalists are threatened. And, uh, and in Israel in the past years, there have been few incidents in which journalists have been attacked. And some journalists have, uh, have, have said that merely walking down the street is an unpleasant experience for them these days under the political climate uh, cultivated by Benjamin Netanyahu. And in that uh, climate, there is the danger that some journalists are going to try to balance their coverage when it's not necessary, where they're going to uh, be overtly more critical towards uh, liberal parties of, or organizations just to please public opinion. And that is also a danger for uh, a democracy. It's not that anyone should be immune, but uh, uh, I would like journalists to target those who really need to be targeted and uh, that reporting should not be affected by what the people want to hear but rather bad by what they should hear.
What we currently see in the US has been observed for some time in other contexts, like, for example, in Israel. Yes, uh, so Yarif explained to us just how sophisticated Prime Minister Netanyahu is in cultivating public mistrust in the media and gave this specific example of the 2015 elections where just five days before election day, Netanyahu accused the media of cooperating with left-wing actors to create political change and upheaval in Israel. He painted a picture of a left-wing threat on Facebook and part of the public who were already skeptical of the media and mostly consumed right-wing media believed this threat and then voted strategically. And actually they didn't vote as right-wing as they had planned to. Uh, initially they wanted to vote for religious conservative parties but then they voted for Netanyahu's less right-wing party. Netanyahu's very um, effective in mobilizing the right-wing camp in Israel, partly because he stands out as a politician that, uh, that is on war with the media. And this is effective in a few levels. First of all, he, he um, uh, shapes the agenda. So there are more important issues to discuss in Israel uh, other than whether the public broadcasting should reform or not or whether the reform should be implemented or not. But once Netanyahu attacks the media, this gets front page coverage because journalists, for them, this is the most important thing or an element, uh, an important element. So. Uh, this is success, and he knows how to push that button. Uh, and, and when he, he shifts the agenda, oftentimes he shifts the agenda from less politically convenient issues. Uh, second, it's, uh, it's, it's basically popular. With public opinion in Israel nowadays, it's clear that mainstream Israel tends to the right. So there, there is no major threat from the left to Netanyahu. What happens is a competition between right-wing politicians on who's more right-wing. Uh, and the uh, uh, ways in which Netanyahu uh, creates conflict with media is effective because it's, for some of his voters, it helps in terms of um, their bad experiences with elites in Israel in the past. It's a war against the elites that were against us. And whether or not these perceptions are accurate or not, people act upon their perceptions, not according to uh, reality. So the point in, in short is that these perceptions, these negative perceptions against the media, are politically relevant and politically uh, effective. Uh, in nowadays uh, Israeli politics, I assume also in Hungary, in Austria, uh, clearly in the US. But then we asked, if Netanyahu attacks the media and the media in turn puts these attacks on their agenda, don't they emphasize and draw further attention to the mistrust in their work? And is there then a way out of this spiral? 
for um, liberals in Israel, the, uh, the, the strategy of Netanyahu raises a problem. Uh, remaining silent, you remain silent. You didn't do anything. You were just attacked and did not respond. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, uh, the reaction is part of the general plan, at least I suspect, that the negative reactions just are uh, used by Netanyahu to uh, convince the persuadees, those that were already persuaded, that he's, uh, that he's right. And it, it seems to me even that at times he's searching for conflicts with, uh, with the media um, just to get that uh, response because that response is politically um, beneficial to him. In a similar manner, there was um, a reform in public broadcasting is, in Israel that has been uh, uh, debated. In, it was debated in 2014 under Netanyahu, and he was very supportive of it. Uh, he even uh, uh, presented it as a major achievement in his election campaign basically equating between the workers of the former broadcast authority that was closed uh, to, to Hamas terrorists, basically because both terrorists and the broadcasters fear Netanyahu, and he has hurt both of them. So uh, comes 2015, and then he's all of a sudden against this reform because the broadcast uh, corporation, the new broadcast corporation that was about to open would be too left-wing. Now, my sense is by uh, the uh, makeup of the workers, by the, uh, the fact that they had to hire people from the uh, broadcast authority that was closed, but all the new people were a diverse mix of Israelis. It's the first time I've seen on, uh, on, uh, on TV um, not only Arab Israelis as anchors and, and, and correspondents, but also ultra-Orthodox settlers. Uh, so, so the allegations kind of seem suspicious. And uh, with being in charge of so many problems when you run a state with Israel, my sense was as an observer that Netanyahu has better things to do with his time. Still, he made this a major coalition crisis. And this was in the headlines for months and months. In the end, um, it ended up with a compromise that did not still pass courts. So in the meantime, he had lost the war. But doesn't, that doesn't matter. He was perceived as anti-media, as anti-elitist, and uh, everything the corporation now does is under suspect of being too left-wing or too right-wing. Uh, and, and people watch out and are, are careful in what they say about Netanyahu in some places in the media, just because his reactions are extremely sometimes uh, uh, virulent against journalists. Part of his strategy is when comes uh, another investigative reports, and he's, you know he's, uh, he's involved in... Uh, uh, four or five police investigation on separate allegations. Interestingly, some of them has to do with uh, uh, media, so kind of uh, 
favorable coverage for uh, uh, benefits, kind of uh, corruption charges. But in any case, when there is an investigative report and he's asked for a reaction, he would send the journalists uh, 10 minutes reaction, smearing the journalists as left-wingers. And the reaction would typically start with the words, I wonder if this prestigious journalist is honest enough to read this report in its entirety. So you see some of Israel's most prestigious journalists sitting on TV live reading 15 pages of smears against them and allegations that they're left-wingers, uh, which is uh, uh, a dilemma for journalists that they cannot solve else in, in any other way. So that way you see for followers of the right, the sting is of the investigative report is already not so sharp because uh, the uh, denial was so uh, strong and so long. It's almost as if Netanyahu has read uh, the uh, classic uh, persuasion uh, theories and, and implements them in his uh, media relations. Of course, a lot of public discourse nowadays plays out online, which allows audiences who don't know each other personally to discuss and engage. And that also means that some are very vocal in expressing their opinions, which might intimidate and silence others. Yariv and his colleague Shira Dvir-Gwirsman explore this in a paper called Silencing Fellow Citizens, where they rely on the theory of the spiral of silence. So, to explain this in short, and without going in too much detail here, this theory is based on the assumption that people, out of fear of being isolated, remain silent instead of voicing their opinion, when they believe that their opinion is different from the opinion of the majority. And by being silent, they contribute to this assumption that the other opinion is the one of the majority, which again might silence others, and so on, and the spiral turns. And in contrast to most studies who look at those who are silenced, uh, Yariv and Shira focused on those who do the silencing and what that means for democracy and freedom of speech. So at least in the Israeli context we studied, which was a context of the 2014 conflict, Israel-Gaza conflict, but also a year later, it's uh, sadly, but Above midpoint of the scale, the level of support to the notion that it's not only uh, okay, but also your civic duty to make others shut up. And, uh, and I must say, uh, some of the reviewers for the papers were arguing that this is uh, an Israeli thing. And... Uh, we responded in, in two ways. First of all, we uh, uh, used public opinion philosophy, especially Rousseau, but some of his followers as well, speculated about the role uh, public opinion as censorship, public opinion as signaling what are the uh, uh, views that should and should not be heard, the corrupt views that should be out of the debate. And uh, the other response was that we showed that 
this kind of rhetoric that this is not the right time to express your view or that some views should not be expressed. Uh, they could be found in various places in various times, not only in Israel. So uh, we have examples there from Archie Banker, who used to uh, ask his uh, son-in-law and daughter to stifle, to a Saturday Night Live skit uh, that uh, showed you how to make your conservative uh, relative shut up on Thanksgiving dinner using Hadell's uh, hit Hello. And, and you see in other places the notion that some views should not be expressed some of the times. Now, freedom of speech as a legal right is not under attack in Israel. And partly because the Netanyahu coalition needs extreme speech so that they could fight the imaginary uh, enemies and show their base that they are against the uh, enemies of the countries, the traitors, and so forth. But the courage to speak out in such a hostile environment, and that applies to citizens as, as well as journalists. I describe in the paper uh, uh, a few incidents in which, you know, uh, protesters against the 2014 war were, were met by, by right-wing uh, protesters who, whose expressed intent was to make them shut up, basically. So that is uh, when the norm is that it's okay to tell people to shut up. It's not only okay, it's almost your, your civic responsibility and duty. Expressing dissenting views gets more and more difficult. And it's a misunderstanding almost of the notion of free speech. Because theory says free speech is not just a legal right that is there to ensure that you could speak when it's left-wing cabinet. So uh, from the right, the support of free speech use this uh, uh, argument that uh, we don't want to give them ammunition when they're in power and they're going to shut us up. That's not the reason for free speech. The mere exposure to extreme views has effects on the entire system, even on wrong views, according to uh, the philosophy of free speech. So we don't only want people having the the legal right to express themselves. We want them to express themselves. So what I sense on uh, the Israeli right wing these days is the supporters of free speech would say, you know, I disagree with you. I, uh, I am going to uh, uh, fight for your right to express your wrong view. But at the same time, I'm going to delegitimize it so that you'll be afraid to express it. And that's not the total acceptance of the notion of free speech. It's interesting because we got to that paper from the context of the spiral of silence that always looked at the silenced, not at the silencer's perspective. And it raises a lot of uh, hypotheses that we didn't 
we only par- partly examined. I would say the more you feel comfortable, the more you feel in the majority, the more you support undemocratic norms, the more you're gonna uh, feel free to let people know that they should shut up, uh, basically. The only other comment I have to ha- add on this is that it's not the same as selective exposure and selective avoidance. All three are communication strategies uh, aimed at finding oneself in a comfortable environment that does not challenge one's view, but they're also uh, different. Uh, for example, there is a difference between uh, males and females in belief in the importance of silencing others, but not in selective exposure and selective uh, um, avoidance, that is, uh, avoiding media that you disagree with. And the reason is that males are, for one thing, more talk more, and to tell other people to shut up, you need to be more talkative. And secondly, they're more willing to violate norms of conversation, and shut up is a violation of a norm uh, of conversation. It's called interrupt, interruption in discourse analysis, basically, in conversation analysis. So, so they're not the same. Uh, they're different, they have different origins. They're correlated, but the correlation is only, uh, is only mild. So unfortunately, we have already come to the end of this podcast. And to end our conversation, we asked Yariv what he thinks are some of the pressing questions for future journalism research. It's no secret that some of our series were born in the age of... Uh, countries with a single television channel, a different communication ecology. The way people process information psychologically has not changed, perhaps. The defense mechanisms, the motivated processing and so forth, but the, uh, the impact of the different ecology on notions of trust, on notions of uh, uh, media effects. It's clear that this is one of the biggest challenges to, to the field. I would say the major challenge is separating what's the same and what is different. Because uh, human psychology has changed, but perhaps not as dramatically as the, the communication environment. At the same time, the opportunities for expression are perhaps, and for meaningful expression, are perhaps bigger. And we know that expression is the best way to persuade people, actually, to make them talk. So, so some of our, our, our series needs revision, but I'm not saying anything new here. Bennett and Iyengar said this, and... 2009, and it's almost a decade later, and we still have not made the, met the challenge that they uh, raised in their paper. So that was it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast again. And if you want to know more about Yari's work, you can go to the University of Haifa webpage. 
And if you'd like to know more about our research, you can find us at the Journalism Studies Center at the University of Vienna. And our website is journalismstudies.univ.ac.at. There you can also find information on the rest of our awesome team, Daniel Nelleke and Hannah Siegel, led by Volker Hanusch, and also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch. We hope you'll be around for our next podcast, where we will continue this discussion around the tension between right-wing and left-wing public spheres and journalism's role in it, uh, next time with Armin Scholl from the University of Münster. The music you heard today is from Blue Dot Sessions and we also want to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer for lending us her beautiful voice and Radio Campus of University of Vienna for lending us their equipment. My name is Sandra and I'm Phoebe. Until next time. Bye.